Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? I'm Seth Stevenson. Today on the show, we'll be talking about Food52, a website for recipes, food talk, and curated kitchen supplies. Joining me will be Meryl Stubbs, co-founder and president of Food52. In our conversation, she talks about her background as a cooking school student, about the interesting demographic tentpoles of Food52's customer base, and about the balance of combining web content with web commerce. After the break, Meryl Stubbs, co-founder and president of Food52. Hello, and welcome to Who Runs That? I'm Seth Stevenson. Today, we will be talking about Food52, and with us is co-founder and president of Food52, Meryl Stubbs. Meryl, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So for people who are not familiar with it, what is Food52? Food52 is essentially at its heart a community for people who care about how they eat and how they live. And we started almost 10 years ago now squarely focused on content and specifically recipes um, with a focus on recipes from home cooks, from real people who are in the kitchen, you know, every day, every week, whatever the case may be, and uh, really have strong opinions and experience uh, in the kitchen and wanted to share it with others and have sort of a social experience around food and cooking. And over the years, uh, we've evolved to become a more, what we like to call a sort of a 360 degree brand. Um, again, very focused on our community. That's the sort of the heart of who we are. Uh, but now we like to think of ourselves as a one-stop shop for people who care about how they eat and how they live. So we now uh, still still have great content, a lot of which comes from our community in the form of recipes, articles, videos. Um, but we also have expanded into home content, and we have a hotline, which is a real-time Q&A platform where our community members can, you know, ping questions off of each other and get answers and, and advice uh, in real time, whether it's, you know, how to save a, a dry turkey or, you know, ideas for kitchen renovation. And we also have a shop, which uh, basically where we bring all the best highly curated kitchen and home goods to our community to help them kind of bring the inspiration that the content uh, brings to life in their own homes. So let's go back in time a little bit. Let's talk about how you got here. What was your background before Food 52? So we have the same alma mater. I went to Brown University like you, where I studied comparative literature. And and I studied uh, Italian and English liter literature focusing on medieval literature and wrote my thesis on the Canterbury Tales and the Decameron. Classic background for totally. someone to get into you'd the food expect, industry. Right. It's just <laughs> totally predictable. <laughs> very So very steeped in literature and writing. Uh, but I grew up in a household that very much appreciated good food and with a mother who was not necessarily a trained cook, but a really great intuitive cook. Um, and she made most of our food from scratch growing up, um, including the cookies that were always in the cookie jar. I've published, I don't know how, at this point, probably more than I can count uh, of her cookie recipes because they're, they're, they still are really uh, fond, you know, memories from my childhood and, and 
really wonderful recipes. And so, and and both my, you know, my father and my sister all loved to eat as well. And it just was always part of who who we were. So there were, there were hints of it. And then my senior year in college, when I was writing this thesis that I mentioned, um, I, I found that I procrastinated by picking up the joy of cooking and working my way through it kind of methodically and sort of starting to teach myself the basics of cooking. You had some lucky roommates. <laughs> yes. Well, that, I mean, it, it's interesting you say that because it was sort of a, 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 you know, perpetuated itself because I realized that as I cooked more, more and more people would come over. And so it kind of, it had this really great social effect and created this halo around our house um, that I really loved, you know, and I really, it was, a, it was a great way for me to express myself, to, to cook for people. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not artistic in other ways. Um, and so it became a really important kind of personal tool for me and something I was really passionate about. And when I graduated from Brown, I, I was kind of faced with the dilemma of I really wanted to go to cooking school, but I felt like I needed to get a real job, especially one that had something to do with what I'd studied and be a grown-up. So I went into teaching for a year, and I taught second grade in New York, uh, which is where I grew up. And, you know, the kids were great. The school was great, but I was just not happy. Um, And I had this moment during that year when one of my best friends who'd known me forever sat me down uh, over dinner, and he said, you know what? Just go to cooking school. I know you want to do it. It, it. You need to get out of New York. You need to respect this, you know, kind of passion that you have and see what you can do with it. And this was before going to cooking school was like a thing. Right. Um, you now know, it's, this was now cooking 2000. school is the new film now school. Cook, exactly. <laughs> um, this was really going out on a limb, and I, my parents thought I was crazy. Um, and, you know, I, I paid for it by myself because I didn't want them to feel responsible for something that may or may not work out or pay. And I didn't have a clear vision of what I wanted to do with it. And I, I moved to London for a year and I went to the Cordon Bleu and it was a transformative year. Um, I found my people. I found this outlet, um, this incredible challenge that really motivated me. And uh, I knew that it it was going to have to be a part of my identity going forward. And then you know, fast forward a couple of years after I'd moved back to the United States and had was sort of dabbling in different food-related jobs in Boston where I was living. Um, I was I worked as an intern at America's Test Kitchen for a little while. I worked behind the counter at Flower Bakery, which is run by the amazing Joanne Chang, who's a friend of mine to this day. Um, and I was teaching cooking classes and, and had my own catering business that I launched, trying to figure it out. And then I finally realized I started my own food newsletter. This was before blogs were happening. And so I just was sending out an email newsletter, which I would be very embarrassed for anyone to see um, at this point in time. I think I was using clip art uh, for, my, for my graphics. Uh, but it started to catch on, and friends and family were forwarding it to people. And I was like, oh, I can do writing and food. You know, I can mix these two things. And again, this was before food writing was a thing. So I moved back to New York to pursue this more seriously because in Boston there, were, there weren't as many opportunities and it was time to go home. And uh, lo and behold, I ended up meeting Amanda Hesser, who is my now partner in crime at Food 52, a week after I moved back to New York. And we started working together on a cookbook that she was writing for the New York Times. And Food 52 was born out of that working relationship. 
And so tell me about the origin story of Food 52. Sure. What did you have in mind? How are you going to pay for it? Yeah, (laughs) very good question. Uh, What we had seen as food writers and editors, because at that point I was um, freelancing as a food writer and editor as we were working together on this book, and she had been, you know, in that world for many years. We were witnessing this sort of disconnect between what was happening offline, this renewed sense of enthusiasm and momentum around all things kind of cooking and home. And, you know, people were doing things like quitting their jobs as attorneys to start a chocolate business or to become a ceramicist. Um, There were, you know, these underground dinners that were happening. There were food swaps that were happening. And food blogs were starting to take off very, very dramatically. And we could see that something was really taking root here and that people were going with sort of uh, capabilities of the internet. People were going from wanting to just consume content, uh, specifically around food, to wanting to participate in that process and be part of part of that discussion, which again, now it's like, yeah, duh, of course, that's what everyone wants to, everyone wants to be a content creator. But this was really, you know, this was 10 years ago and, or more. Uh, so it was just starting to happen. So we saw an opportunity there to create a brand that gave a platform to people who didn't necessarily have the time um, or the luxury of having their own food blog, uh, gave them a place to socialize, share ideas, you know, get inspiration, layer in our expertise as, you know, veteran food writers and editors and, you know, provide the sort of beautiful visuals that could elevate the whole thing. So we actually bootstrapped the the initial version of the site that I talked about, which was essentially a mechanism for running recipe contests with a blog kind of slapped onto it by getting a book deal. So we used traditional print media, which is the background that we both came from. We leveraged our relationships there to fund this technology business. So we were able to take that advance, which was $100,000, and pour it into the development of the site and then paying for a part-time engineer to basically keep it running. Uh, And that funded us for the first year and a half and at that point, we went out and raised our first round of funding from uh, angel investors. Mm-hmm. And since then, we've raised money from mostly venture capital, from various investors. And we so we've had four rounds of funding since then. And give us a sense of where you are now, how many employees you have, what your revenues are like. Are you profitable? I don't know which of these things you can disclose or sure, not disclose. But... Sure. Um, so we are at about 90 employees. And... We've always been focused on building a profitable business, a sustainable business, um, even when that was not kind of a sexy thing to do in in the venture capital world. And so that's dictated to a, a large extent the kinds of investors that we've brought on board, people who kind of have a longer term vision and actually see the value in uh, creating a business that's not just focused on top line growth. Um, and so we are projecting profitability this year. We've had months of profitability. Our holiday season is always very big. Um, so typically there are a few months around there where we actually are, are you know, running um, in a cash flow positive state. Um, but we are really aiming very squarely for ongoing profitability uh, by the end of this year. 
Mm-hmm. So where now do your revenue streams come from? Maybe you can give us kind of a bit of a pie chart with yeah. where, where your revenue streams are coming from and, and what proportion of your revenue they make up. Sure. So our two main revenue streams uh, are commerce, which comes directly from uh, all the products that we sell on our site. And and we don't do affiliate commerce, uh, which some people think, you know, sort of assume that we do because the people who think of us as a publisher before a um, you know, an e-commerce site tend to think, oh, of course, they're doing affiliate commerce. And that means taking a little cut. A little of, cut. You're, you're selling someone else's stuff, to but another, you just take yeah. off a cut of it. But and you're you not doing And you don't own the that. customer. But no, we don't do that. We own the customer. Um, we sell everything directly through our site, which means we handle the customer experience from purchase to all the way through to customer care after you receive the product, um, which means that we're not inventorying products. So we use a dropship model, which is basically like Amazon's third-party seller model, um, where we're taking the purchase. We then send a purchase order to the merchant that we work with. And they print out a shipping label that comes from our UPS or, or USPS account. And you know they use our collateral. They put our sticker on the box, but they send it out directly from their warehouse. And then we manage all the communication with the customer um, from, you know, the the whole through the whole process. Mm-hmm. So that's merchandise. And then what are the other? So then the other one is is ad sales or brand mm-hmm. partnerships. Um, so the more sort of kind of traditional publisher retail. Uh, sorry, revenue stream, which and we've had advertising on the site since day one, back to the point of like wanting to build a business with revenue, you know, <laughs> from the very beginning and uh, sustainable revenue. And um, that's been a really interesting business in terms of how it's evolved over the years, especially as we've added the commerce arm, which so we launched our shop in 2013. And last year, commerce represented 70 percent of our revenue. Of our top line revenue, uh-huh. and and that's grown a little bit every year. Uh, pretty quickly, it 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 was a significant revenue stream even in the first year, but it's kind of gotten to be a larger and larger um, portion each year. And a lot, I think a lot of people are surprised by that because a lot of people were introduced to us originally as a publisher. And but but it's it's something that is really important to us to number one have diverse revenue streams. I think that's something that everyone is trying to do. Um, But we also feel that in our industry, um, you know, food and home, it makes sense to have a place where you can not only find recipes, but you can also find, you know, the best Dutch oven to make that recipe in or the serving platter that it's going to look great in and that you see in the photo, you know, of the, you know, let's say it's the the braised lamb shanks and you see a beautiful photo that we've taken on set. And, of course, we're going to take it in one of the Dutch ovens that we sell. And then you can say, oh, you know, I wanted I want that whole package and we can make that happen for you. And what and what are your de- the demographics of your of, of your readership or your your recipe usership yeah. <laughs> like? Um, do you are there any things that jump out about things like age or region or or, or, or gender or you know anything else that sort of characterize um, who's going to Food Fifty Two? Yeah, so we are uh, majority female. Um, it's somewhere between sixty and seventy percent female. So it's not you know dramatically so, uh, and we 
tend to have higher concentrations in urban areas um, and in, in areas that I would say have sort of burgeoning um, or, or vibrant food scenes. So a lot of the cities that you'd expect were very East Coast, West Coast um, heavy. But then there are, there are lots of pockets um, in the middle. And Texas is big, especially from a commerce standpoint. We have a lot of, a lot of big shoppers in, in Texas. Um, and then in terms of age, it, that this is, is the most kind of interesting demographic point, we think. We have sort of two really key buckets. So we have a a very strong um, 35 and under group and not just readers, but shoppers as well. And their their shopping behavior may look slightly different than um, the slightly older shopper, but it's there and it tells us that, you know, maybe this is kind of uh, self-evident, but that, you know, the younger generation is really interested in quality and they want to have things in their homes that, first of all, they know the story behind, that they feel, uh, you know, they they trust the source. And that's something um, that they're sort of investing in for the future. So we talk a lot about sort of heirloom products and that's not everything that we sell, but we do kind of make it a point to seek out Things, um, you know, like, for example, a really great cast iron pan or um, a cutting board that is made to last and is something you can pass down if, if you know, through generations, which is, I think, something that uh, all of us who um, spend time in the kitchen can identify with. And we're, we're really seeing that same interest with the younger group. And then we have this bucket um, that we sort of jump a little bit, like in the from the mid '30s to the mid '40s, uh, which is kind of funny because that's where both Amanda and I land. Um, but we, and then we have this very sort of frequent visitors, frequent shopper um, contingent that is sort of above 45. Uh, you mentioned cutting boards. Yes, I I think you did this crowdsourced cutting board product. I can kind you... of mentioned that intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you tell me the story of that product? Yeah, so. This is, I think, one of the things that we're most excited about, uh, which is kind of our, our most recent really big undertaking. We launched our own product line in October called 5-2. Um, it's a derivative of Food 52, in case that wasn't clear. Uh, and it's a line, we, we describe it as a line for kitchen, home, and life. And it is developed from the ground up in partnership with our community. We've known for a long time that there was an opportunity for us to have our own branded products rather than just be sourcing products made by others, and that it was something we felt like it was really important as a brand to launch a line, you know, that would really allow us to kind of plant a flag. But we wanted to make sure we did it in a way that was really true to our roots. And so we kind of finally landed on the formula for that, and we launched 5-2 well, we launched 5.2 earlier than October in that we started gathering community input on the first few products. The cutting board, wooden cutting board, was the first one that we decided to do because we feel like that's sort of at the very heart of, you know, any cook's world. But before we started to do any meaningful development of that product, we'd identified the maker who we knew could could make it for us. We, we sell some of their products already. And, you know, we know the quality is really high and that they could um, sort of adjust to our specs. But other than that, 
it was basically a blank slate. And so we surveyed our community about six to eight months before that and said, hey, we're going to create the world's best wooden cutting board. What do you want to see in it? In it? How, how do you, you know, what do you see as the best cutting board? What, what qualities would it have? You know, we asked specific questions about thickness, type of wood. Does it matter to you, how, you know, where the wood is sourced? Um, you know, should it have rounded edges? Like, and then give us ideas about other features that you think, you know, it should have. So this is sort of the opposite of, of Steve Jobs used to say, I'm not going to ask you what you want. I'm going to give you something you didn't even know exactly. that you wanted. So Total how, opposite. How, yeah. So how did that, how did you feel about that sort of crowdsourcing approach? I mean, it just, it totally meshed with everything we've done to date. You know, it, it felt like... Number one, we have access to this incredibly engaged, informed community who is super opinionated. And we're not creating a new technology product, right? We're making the best version of something that already exists. I mean, maybe someday we'll, we'll, we'll move into the Steve Jobs realm. But, but we're, we're working with familiar items and trying to perfect them. And our community, in our minds, is the most valuable resource. So who are Food 52's competitors? Who, you, who, are you, who are you up against in terms of the attention of your customers or the dollars of your customers? Um, so th- we kind of look at it in two buckets because, you know, there are competitors um, within the ad sales and brand partnerships world. Um, you know, people who are producing really great food and home content uh, and, you know, we're often sort of up against for ad sales campaigns. And, you know, that's people like um, Bon Appetit, who's doing you know, just amazing, amazing content. You know, I would say it, it, that really runs the gamut. I mean, anyone from them to, you know, Pure Wow to Taste Made to um, Tasting Table, uh, The Kitchen, these are companies that don't necessarily have the same model that we do or even the same um, aesthetic, but often up for kind of similar partnerships with brands. And then on the commerce side, you know, there are a few companies that have a, a similar model to ours, not not many that are focused uh, in our industry. In fact, I would say none that are squarely focused just on food and home. But, you know, someone like Goop, which does offer some products for kitchen and home. They're, they're more focused on on fashion and beauty. But, um, you know, I think there's some overlap there and certainly in terms of aesthetic. Uh, and then, you know, it's like Williams-Sonoma. It's the traditional, you know, retailers, home and kitchen retailers, department stores um, that are, it's just a very different business. And, you know, I think that's where we feel we have we have a leg up in terms of having invested in building a relationship with our readers and our customers and kind of giving this giving them this holistic experience um, that, you know, hopefully over time, it's going to allow us to kind of take a bigger piece of that pie. Um, how have you marketed Food 52? What, what are the best ways you've found to expand your audience? So... We don't actually spend a lot on paid marketing, unlike most e-commerce companies. And that's part of the beauty of our model is that, again, we are, we are bringing people to the site for a variety of reasons. And, you know, we often are able to capture people through a recipe. They, they might um, do a Google search and come across 
Food 52, a Food 52 recipe and learn about us for the first time that way. And then it's our job to introduce them very quickly to the broad spectrum of things that we do and kind of bring them into our world. And uh, so actually, um, organic search is a great way for us, free free way for us to uh, get new audience. Um, Last year, we spent a tiny, tiny fraction of our commerce revenue on paid marketing. Um, and that, you know, in the form of paid social advertisements that were product-related um, or, you know, paid search. Um, and mo- most most of our advertising is product-focused. Occasionally it's brand-focused. But but most of the time we think if, if people come across, um, you know, branded, search term, then they know who we are. So we don't need to be kind of paying for that. And they're going to come to us eventually. Um, So, but it's occasionally paying to show up a little higher in those Google results. Mm -hmm. It's occasionally paying to show up in my Facebook feed, maybe. And and Instagram in particular. Instagram Yeah, Instagram, we have 2.2 million followers on Instagram. And that's always been, that's kind of ever since it it launched, which was after we launched, it's been kind of our home. And a lot of that is sort of for obvious reasons that so much of what we do is about, you know, the visuals of the food and, you know, the home setting or the products that, that, you know, we're featuring. And Instagram is just the perfect place for that. And it's the place that people go um, to look for food content and to just, you know, get inspired. And so it lends itself very naturally to uh, what we do. But it's also a great place for us to have interactions with people. Um, We're really focused on not just posting content, but actually kind of pulling our community into our feed by engaging with them and also reposting. So about half of our Instagram posts in our organic feed, not not our paid posts, um, are actually reposts from our community. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more from Meryl Stubbs, co-founder and president of Food52. Okay, I'm going to ask some questions about you as a manager. So <laughs> you had a co-founder. Um, how do you go about dividing the workload? Do you, do you naturally gravitate to different areas of the business? We do. And we don't have – we love talking about this because for a long time I think we felt like we had to have a really crisp answer to this question because everyone – you know, you were a technical co-founder or you were a business co-founder or, you know, you were a product-focused co-founder and – God forbid that there was any overlap. Um, But the truth is we have very similar backgrounds and areas of expertise. And, you know, that's changed over 10 years. You learn a lot when you're running a business. Neither of us went to business school, but we now say, you know, Food 52 is our business school. Um, So, and yeah, there are things that we each gravitate naturally towards. And we've kind of carved up our responsibilities in part based on those things. For example, since the very beginning, um, I have kind of overseen um, all of our legal and accounting and sort of financial departments. I mean, it, I was the department for a long time. <laughs> now we actually have experts who are handling a lot of that stuff. Um, but I tend to be sort of the go-to um, for those and, and sort of people in HR-related things. And um, she is is very you know she has a really strong background obviously in in journalism and um she's great at PR so she um tends to be on the front lines a lot and she is sort of the 
um, primary kind of liaison with our investors. I mean, we, we all have strong relationships, but she tends to be sort of the primary point person. Um, and then the rest of it, honestly, we were like, okay, you take this half of the company and I'll take the other half of the company. And sometimes it switches. And we're both really involved in all things brand and marketing and product development related. Um, very, We're both very hands-on. We still personally approve one or both of us, every product that gets sold on the site. We do weekly product reviews where our buying team who sources all of our products lays stuff out um, on tables in the office. It's our favorite meeting of the week. And we get to try them out and test them out and, you know, give our thumbs up or thumbs down or let's test this or whatever the case may be. Um, we are very, very involved in kind of any large um, brand moments, content campaigns, um, community-facing communications. Uh, we're definitely not Neither one of us has a strong technical background, so thank goodness we have really strong leaders, um, both for you know our, our digital product department and uh, our engineering department. And you know there, there are other areas too where we obviously have to lean lean on people with deep and and specific expertise. But we've we've become subject matter experts in a lot of things that we had no background in before, which enables us to kind of you know okay you know. Jim has been reporting to you for the last year, but I think maybe you need some more exposure to this. So let's let's swap for a little bit and see how that goes. Do you enjoy dealing with things like accounting and, and HR? That could not have been what you presumably were thinking of you would be doing when you went to Cordon Blue, right? That's No. Um, you know, it's funny. I enjoy is maybe not the word I would choose, but I have like a weird there's a weird satisfaction that I get from um I mean, not weird because there are plenty of people who really love this, but maybe weird in terms of like my background or, you know, what the majority of my day is focused on. Um, I I find comfort in numbers and kind of checking things off my to-do list. And there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to do that um, in those areas of the business. And I and I really do uh, the, the people piece. I really like hearing from people. I like I love spending time with our team members. And Amanda's the same way. Um, we really value feedback and um, are always kind of encouraging people to give it to us and understand that that's not always going to happen because, you know, someone who has only been at the company for a couple of months or, you know, may not interact with us on a daily basis isn't necessarily going to feel comfortable coming to the CEO or the president with direct feedback. But we both, like, deeply want that. How would you describe your, your management style in the absence of that feedback? Before that feedback yeah. comes, what's your sort of yeah. default management mode? Um, I think I am I'm tend to be pretty hands-off um, and kind of l- let people come to their own solutions whenever possible. But I also like for people who are reporting to me to know that I'm I'm here as a sounding board. I definitely like to get in and help them problem solve when they need it. I don't want to overstep and offer a solution if I think that they can um, come come to one themselves. I don't. I really don't like to micromanage, um, but I also like to make people feel like I'm a resource. Um, so it's kind of like you know, give them wings and let them fly. But I, I do like them to feel that I'm kind of the um, the safety net <laughs> if they need it. Okay, I'm going to move to our lightning round. Are you ready? Sure. 
Are there any books or movies that inform how you manage an organization that you sort of draw on when you think about how you manage people? Um, yes. Uh, the Power of Full Engagement by Tony Schwartz and James Lohr, which I read probably about five years ago now, I would say has had the most lasting impact on how I think about not just managing people, but managing my life. Um, it's all about uh, kind of focusing and fully engaging in whatever you're doing in the moment and then giving yourself time to recover. And the, the whole theory is, th their theory is that um, we all talk about the limited availability of time, but in fact, it's energy and not time. That is the real resource, you know, the finite resource that we have to employ. And so, employing it very intentionally, uh, deploying it. <laughs> this isn't another way of looking at it, I think. Um, and then also making sure to not put out energy when you don't need to. Um, so they talk about athletes. That's sort of the, the starting point of the book. Um, and they both kind of... Um, they did consulting work for specifically for athletes and tennis players in particular uh, for many years before writing this book and sort of working with them to, you know, let's say it's like Roger Federer before he plays a point. He's putting all of his intention and he has rituals that go into, you know, the, the seconds before he plays a point um, that allow him to focus and fully engage in that point. And then in the two seconds he has between points, he has an additional set of rituals and practices that allow him to recover mm -hmm. in this very small period of time so that he's ready to fully engage again. And that obviously is not something I can relate to personally, um, <laughs> even though my husband is a diehard Roger Federer fan, but that they apply all of these kind of real-life business um, stories to that that kind of theory. And I, I really just learned so much from that book uh, about how to kind of carve out time, try not to multitask quite so much, really focus and get more out of each moment of engaging in a, a project or a thought process so that, you know, I can get more bang for my buck. Mm -hmm. uh, meetings. Are you pro or con? How do you handle meetings at Food 52? <laughs> oh, we say that we're anti-meeting, but we have way too many of them, which I think is probably pretty common. Yeah. It's like the endless struggle is how to have fewer meetings. Um, what mistake have you made that you've learned the most from? <sighs> um, this is very specific. I think this has to do with hiring. We have repeated the same mistake a number of times where So we, you haven't learned that much from it. Well, yet. <laughs> I think that's true. I think we have learned. I think we have gotten better, but it's still a process for sure, where we have a number of times brought on someone for a role, typically a, a more like senior level executive role, based on maybe not what we need at the time, but what we envision ourselves needing a little further down the road. So brought on someone too senior or someone who maybe hasn't had the exposure to kind of the nitty gritty of, you know, a technology, you know, a, a nascent, 
I mean, we're 10 years old, but we still operate in a pretty scrappy fashion, um, you know, a, a tech company that operates in this sort of particular way. Uh, and because we sort of like the person and we like what they have to say and we feel like, you know, they're going to they're gonna be able to make it work. And it ends up, you know, it doesn't set them up for success and it doesn't set up for us up for success. And so I think we've gotten better at it, but it is challenging. Hire for the company you have, not for the company. Uh, yeah. That you... <laughs> I mean, it's hard to say that because so I think other people would maybe say something different, but it kind of depends on what the next six months look like. And I think you, you need to be really realistic about where you are now, where you'll be in six months. And unless there's a really, really big change coming in the next six months, you should hire for where you are now. Okay, last question. If I fired you tomorrow and you could never again do anything like this again, nothing food related, <laughs> nothing digital media related, nothing digital commerce related, just nothing at all okay. like what you're doing now or have done in the past, what would you do instead? I would be a professional singer. Oh, what genre? <laughs> Probably Broadway. Do you want to audition right now? Can we hear your chops? <laughs> no, I can't. I mean, I, another time maybe, but okay. I, I was a singer in a former life. Uh, what did you do? Well, I, I studied voice pretty seriously um, all through high school. I actually almost went to a conservatory instead of a traditional liberal arts school uh, like Brown. And uh, then I, I still, as an adult, take voice lessons just for fun. Um, but I, I really find great joy in it. We could have had Song 52 instead of <laughs> Food 52. Meryl Stubbs, co-founder and president of Food 52, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, that's our show. Who Runs That is produced by Cameron Drews. TJ Raphael is the senior producer for Slate Podcasts. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director for Slate Podcasts. If you like us, please rate and review us in the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can email us at whorunsthat at slate.com. I'm Seth Stevenson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>